The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Welcome back once again to the State House Takeout, joined this week by Chris Lasinski, Colin Young, and Katie Lennon of the State House News Service. Hi, folks. Happy hey, Friday. Sam. Hello. Hey, happy Friday. Thank God. We're just trying to get through another Friday here. And uh, uh, actually, Colin Young, our uh, our office fire marshal, has just informed me that uh, <laughs> that uh, lighting matches is not a good way to uh, amuse myself in the office as we try to get through another Friday. No, it's not. No. no. Well, you know. Especially in a, a newspaper office. <laughs> We've got a pretty good quantity of combustibles. Especially you in a historical building. <laughs> You speak like a well-informed fire marshal for our office, Colin. I, I know the basics. Good, good. <laughs> Don't play with matches. Yeah. <laughs> Don't play with matches. Stop, drop, and roll. Stop, drop, and roll. And you're the keeper of our office fire extinguisher. That's right. So we are in good hands. Um, well, uh, let's, uh, let's dig right in here. Uh, we talked on last week's takeout about the Senate's rollout and, and preview of their big climate change debate, which did indeed happen uh, yesterday, Thursday. Uh, and Katie, you were here until, uh, until what, what time? The Senate wrapped up around 9.30. I wrapped up... About 45 minutes after that. So all in all, not as late as it seemed like really anyone was expecting. Honestly, yeah. As we, and we kind of do this on a big session day as we get into the building. We canvass the aides and lawmakers we see in the halls and the elevators. Hey, how late do you think it's going to go tonight? And um, <laughs> certainly uh, they, they moved with some efficiency to get through all those amendments. Yeah. Well, it's important to know how late they're going to go so you can plan what time to take your dinner break, when to get your uh, takeout. <laughs> All right. Yes, indeed. You you are correct, Katie. You I'm are. I'm just trying to live up to the uh, the threshold of takeout puns that you set last week, Sam. <laughs> Th- thank you. Um, uh, and and th- so there was that pack of three climate bills, uh, three individual bills, but viewed as sort of a, a collective effort uh, dealing with carbon pricing, electric vehicles, energy efficiency for home appliances, uh, and the big one. The big goal up here as of this month, uh, and we talked a lot about it last week as well, net zero emissions by 2050. And these were nearly unanimous votes only uh, on each of those bills, only two uh, Republican senators voting in opposition. Um, did, we, uh, did we hear um, from them at all as to what their principal objections were? No, I mean, it, when I was down on the floor, at least the, the two dissenting senators, I was there for some of the final votes, uh, Dean Tran and Ryan Fatman were were pretty quiet. We didn't hear much from them. I don't know. Colin and Chris were on the floor for much of the afternoon. I don't know if you guys heard anything from them, really. I don't recall them speaking. I recall uh, the minority leader, Bruce Tarr, raising significant concerns earlier in the day about the costs of this, which I think we're going to get into a little bit later. But as you mentioned, Sam, he ended up voting in favor of the bill despite those concerns. Right. And I think it might... um, we will probably be on some safe ground to speculate that uh, for for those two members, two of the more conservative members of the Senate Republican caucus, uh, that there may have been some hesitancy there to um, uh, agree with or to go along with uh, a plan to put a price on carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, could, could certainly see... Uh, coming from the more conservative Republicans, an argument uh, against making uh, it more expensive for people to travel and heat their homes. And at the same time, I don't know about you three, but um, 
I was actually a little surprised by just how close to unanimous the votes were. Uh, we actually had a good quote. I think, Katie, you got this quote after the session from um, uh, Telecom Utilities and Energy Chairman Mike Barrett. Um, people wanted to get radical. They wanted to get dramatic. And I think we gave them the bill they were looking for. Uh, radical. And as, as we look at the as as we look at the prospects of these bills uh, in the House or on the governor's desk, radical and dramatic are not really words that resonate all that much with the House or with the governor. Yeah, I think that's the uh, sort of interesting dynamic that's shaping up now that one branch has gone ahead and, and adopted a bill, which is that uh, all three parties, all three concerned parties here, the House, the Senate, uh, or at least House and Senate leadership and the governor have said they're on board with this idea of net zero emissions by 2050. Well, now the Senate's gone ahead and and presented how it proposes the state get there, um, which is to say largely throwing it to the administration and and saying, OK, now the executive branch come up with the fine details here. Uh, but exactly, it, it'll be very interesting to watch as the session progresses what the House's response is and what kind of a bill the House rolls out and what indications the governor, uh, who's got his hands full on climate-related uh, issues now as he tries to keep the Transportation Climate Initiative together, right? Uh, what he indicates he might or might not support. Sure. And Katie? It's, it's just interesting, too, because, you know, we've, since we've seen the governor lay out this 2050 goal in his state of the state, um, his Energy and Environmental Affairs Secretary, She's kind of said she's going to be able to pursue that through the executive, through policy on that side and not necessarily through the legislature. But at the same time, you see some advocates saying that it, you know, if we're going to make this commitment, we need to codify it into statute. We need to have it, you know, on par with the 2008 Global Warming Solutions Act, something that is a, a mandate that can't be backed away from that has a, a process spelled out to get there. Sure. Uh, I mean, from a negotiation standpoint, just as one branch negotiating with another branch and, and an executive, um, to start from a radical point or is, is the thought process perhaps that if it gets watered down or pared back or scaled back, uh, that at least you wind up with something bolder than if you just started with a, a plain net zero bill? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's kind of a, a fundamental principle of negotiating, whether you're, you know, bartering over in a in haymarket over your <laughs> your fresh produce if or, you know, on major legislation, you you, you know, don't want to start in the middle um, in order to get to the middle. And I did ask President Spilka last week, too, just about the concept of doing three bills instead of one and if that was strategic. Right. Yeah. Um, why three? Yeah. It's it's an interesting move there because it, it kind of reminiscent of almost the, the opposite last year right. when the Senate passed this big climate bill that included similar carbon pricing language and the, the House countered with four bills of its own. Right. Just a real quick aside that um, as we considered the, the Senate this session going about the climate policy bills with three separate pieces of legislation. Uh, President Spilka has also indicated that that's how she wants to tackle health care this session. Another big, complex, complicated topic uh, that last session the two branches tried to do, each with their own omnibus bills, things fell apart there. So this session on, on now two big, complicated issues, the Senate has shown... Um, a, a preference to split things up and do individual bills rather than a giant 
omnibus bill. Right. And as we see the Spilka presidency continue to develop, uh, it is interesting to see what her what her style is here. And, and this seems to be emerging. You're right, Colin. Yeah, it's a, it's notably a, a departure from um, past practice in, in recent Senate history when the when the major omnibus bill tended to be more in favor. On the topic of negotiations and getting the other stakeholders on board, as Colin mentioned, I think it's interesting that the the net zero by 2050 goal is very clearly laid out in this bill as our five-year interval benchmarks, but a lot of the techniques are left to the administration to draft what these carbon pricing and market-based compliance mechanisms will actually look like rather than dictating it through the legislature. Um, you, you guys would know more about what past carbon pricing efforts have looked like, but if I'm the governor, I have to be more happy given the leeway to reach this rather than an order on exactly what to do. That's a very good point. Um, Especially if you're a governor who says he's uh, not too into the concept of taxes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, quickly, uh, how could just continuing to cue off this keyword of, of radical or dramatic. Um, it's a good quote. Um, uh, quickly, how, how could this have been a more radical bill? I mean, we, we've heard from uh, one advocate uh, who was looking for bolder action. Why stop at zero? Why stop at net zero? Why not push for 100 uh, percent renewable energy? Um, what are some of the other ways that we might have been hearing about that um, this could have even gone farther than it did? One thing we didn't see in this bill is the uh, authorization for additional clean energy procurements. That's something that's been in the uh, climate bill that the legislature has passed each of the last two sessions. Uh, so in 2016, of course, was the first authorization for uh, two offshore wind projects and a hydro project. Uh, and then in 2018, the legislature went back and authorized uh, another two offshore wind procurements. Uh, th there were amendments filed that would have authorized even additional, additional uh, mm. offshore wind procurements, uh, but those were withdrawn. Uh, that ultimately is not in the bill. Uh, but that would have led the state further down the road of uh, or closer to 100 percent renewable which, of course, would also uh, address the net zero goal, but it would do so by getting further down that 100 percent renewable path. Sure. Uh, speaking of amendments, um, let's talk a little bit about the floor action that um, the, the four of us saw as we covered from the floor yesterday. Um, at the start of the debate, Senator Pacheco, uh, who was the one, if we think back to 2019, um, who was really putting the pressure on the president to bring a climate bill to the floor, and she promised him it'll come up in January. It did. Um, uh, he gave quite a speech at the start of the debate, and he said that the Senate could come out of its Thursday session with a landmark bill, could be the best climate bill in uh, the United States, but he wanted to see certain changes affected by amendment. Um, so that was him at the beginning of the night. Uh, uh, how did it end up um, after uh, all was said and done and, and some amendments were adopted, some withdrawn, rejected? Uh, what was the sense at the end of the night from senators um, from Senator Pacheco? Well, one of the things he, he said, on, you know, he kept kind of that positive tone about the bill up throughout um, the, his last few remarks on the floor. And one of the amendments they did ultimately add was a an amendment that Senator Pacheco had sponsored. And it was one of those kind of routine things we see is the emergency preamble on, on Beacon Hill, right? Which doesn't always speak to an emergency so much as it changes the timeline of the bill. It makes it effective within 
as soon as it's signed instead of that 90-day waiting period if it gets signed. Um, but this one had some interesting language, and it specifically declared that Massachusetts was responding to a climate emergency. That's kind of interesting. That's something we have seen from some of the advocates is that they want the state to call this an emergency. They say we need to, you know, kind of step one is to call call it what it is, according to these advocates, to call it an emergency and address it as such. And when you're talking about goals that deal with where we're going to be in 2050 or where we're going to be, it's, it's perhaps easy to think of this as sort of a long-term planning issue, mm-hmm. um, whereas some of the goals that we saw contained in the bill or contained in the amendments uh, deal with uh, goals for 2022 or 2025, um, trying to bring the timeline up on some of that stuff. Yeah, for sure. It's, a, it's an interesting tension to kind of look at, you know, you have on the one hand people saying we need to act now, but on the other hand, we're planning out 30 years. Yeah. Um, and we could spend a lot of time talking about these, what was it, 123 amendments? Um, That's just on the on the main bill. Oh, right. Altogether, we had, what, 151 when you look at the, the package or the combo platter as a... The, the combo platter? <laughs> the combo platter. There's oh, an right. energy oh. phrase we haven't heard in a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, now, many of those amendments zeroed in on specific groups, uh, matter of fact. Um, we heard Senator Feeney talk about energy workers in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, we heard folks talk about a historic district. Senator Sear, who represents the largest historic district in Massachusetts, down on Old Kings Highway, and uh, how solar panels and things like that interact with historical churches and homes, uh, rural areas, low-income people, um, a, a lot of interesting areas that, that uh, were talked about. And uh, What was the success rate for those amendments, those 150-something? Looking at the... the Amendments as a whole, what did we have? Something like 30 approved and more with the bulk were withdrawn, as is usually the case when we get a big bill on the floor like this. But those that were successful, as you point out, I think dealt quite a lot with specific subgroups of people who will ultimately be affected by this. Um, Not necessarily imposing too many specifics, but codifying into the language that uh, as we embark on carbon pricing, state leaders will need to keep in mind regional equity and uh, low and moderate income equity. Um, you know, I'll be interested to see how that actually plays into these mechanisms once we see them unrolled 10 or 20 years down the line. Um, because right now, all we got was just the language emphasizing that these people matter and this is a problem that we will have to think carefully about. You're right, Chris, that those were some of the areas where we saw the amendments be successful. And, and there were some others like uh, a reforestation amendment that uh, we've actually been getting some, some statements about from different groups. And, and that one, uh, Senator Tarr announced um, when it came up on the floor that there was bipartisan consensus and he had worked with Senator Pacheco and Senator Hines and um, there was some uh, some areas of consensus within the amendment category. Um, but let's move on to uh, what we still don't know, uh, what's still unknown about um, what effects these bills would have or what practical effects these bills would have if, if they were signed into law uh, tomorrow. Um, Net zero emissions by 2050 is a lofty goal, uh, but as far as how Massachusetts would achieve it under this bill, uh, it was actually acknowledged. Uh, Katie, you might have been on the floor. Whoever was on the floor when Senator Lesser was speaking, he actually acknowledged that uh, well, we aren't really going to get into specifics tonight of uh, how this would be carried out. 
Right. This bill is, or these bills, I should say, are really more about setting that goal than than prescribing exactly how to get to that goal. Uh, personally, I wonder if part of that is uh, some thinking that some of this is going to have to take place 10, 15 years from now. We don't know now what the best solutions available to us in 10 or 15 years might be. So if you you set that goal, you set that mandate uh, for 2050, and then you leave uh, the administration, the executive branch, whichever administration it might be, right? sort of give them some flexibility to um, to do what they need to do to meet those mandates. Uh, I think that's another, just uh, as a quick note, another important uh, thing to acknowledge here is that the 2008 Global Warming Solution Act, uh, we initially would... We initially had been referring to it as setting goals for greenhouse gas emissions. And after a group of students actually uh, brought the issue through the courts, the SJC said, no, no, these aren't goals. These are mandates. Mm. It's a law. The state is requiring that it reach these levels. Um, Self-prescribed deadlines, if you will. Exactly. So this bill is really throwing that on the administration and saying, we're going to hold you to this requirement. You you do what you need to do to get there. And to your point, in 10 years, 20 years, different technologies will exist, different best practices, and different people in all these roles with different ways of doing things. Katie? Some of that, that technology point actually did come up on the floor, um, not, um, you know, in one specific area when they were talking about electric vehicles and the idea that uh, new constructions, the parking lots, you know, after over a certain number of parking spaces would have to be electric vehicle ready. And Senator Barrett said that, you know, they didn't want to prescribe like you must have this particular type of charging station because the technology is going to change. You know, he said one thing I didn't know that you can't plug a Tesla and a Chevy Volt into the same charging station. I guess it's like trying to, you know, charge your Android and your iPhone off the same cord like that. The plug itself is different so they didn't want to lock people into things that are continuing to develop and may be more efficient and accessible over time sure and of course we could not talk about yesterday's session without referencing the charts and graphs charts and graphs quick question what does this do (laughs) what does this do what is the cost uh, the minority leader, Senator Tarr, uh, from his uh, perch in Minority Crescent. Is it still Minority Crescent or is it a constellation? Uh, 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 is it Minority Arc with Arc in acronym it, for Advancing Reasonable it was Compromise? Compromise or Concepts? Concept, Senator uh, Tarr last night, and it might have just been that the hour was getting late <laughs> um, and it was defaulting to the, the comfortable term. He was referring to Minority Crescent. So I don't know if that's uh, stayed or, or changed or what the correct nomenclature is. Well, but the caucus is down to only four members now. <laughs> so you might be limited into what you can call yourself. A it, cluster? It, cluster, you know? Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, the minority leader uh, uh, had a, a vast assemblage of charts, graphs, and, and various uh, signs with uh, simple concepts and questions to illustrate his points. And his points were, generally, uh, we don't know everything we should know at this point, and why don't we, at first, he said, why don't we recommit the bill to ways and means, right, to get an, an estimate of the cost, and he was very interested in the cost of, uh, what, the, the cost to the consumer, the cost to the business of putting some of this into effect. 
Um, when's it going to be time to talk about these specifics? I would imagine that a lot of those cost details will come up as some of these specific carbon pricing mechanisms come up. You know, we're uh, at the point where, they're, where Governor Baker is trying to keep TCI together, and we just found out a couple of months ago, more than a year into the drafting process of that, what the impact on gas prices would be. So if we project years down the line, once we start drafting a you know, housing carbon pricing mechanism or uh, an electricity carbon pricing mechanism as the bill lays out, um, I mean, I'm kind of taking a shot in the dark here, but I would imagine it would be quite some time until we get into the actual mechanics before we got a lot of specific cost information. Yeah, I think you'd need to know what a what type of carbon pricing we're, we're going to do before you can really get into how much it costs. Now, whether that's the right way to approach it, whether, you know, you should know the cost before you vote on it or or whether you should, you know, leave that to the administration to figure out that's a, you know, question for the Senate, I guess, or the House at this point. Right, the House at this point. And what are the prospects in the House? Do we think that they'll take up these three bills, redraft them into one House Ways and Means version that cherry picks points that they like? Or what are some of their options here? That sounds about right. Something along those those general lines, right? I mean, that's typically how the House um, handles legislation that's come over from the Senate is thank you, we will take this under advisement. And then we often see bills come out of House Ways and Means that adopt some elements of what the Senate did, uh, but also put a distinctly House, um, you know, it's a distinctly House bill. It's, uh, you got to remember that the House has, um, what, four times as many members as, as the Senate. So for leadership over in the House, they have to get four times as many people on board with a plan uh, than Senate leadership does. As you talk about consensus. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really know at this point what the, the House's net zero vehicle might be. They have a, a carbon pricing bill of their own kicking around over there, um, now being championed by Rep Driscoll. And right, since the uh, departure of Rep Benson. That's right. And we could see that could be redrafted. I guess we'll have to watch kind of big picture what comes out of the telecom committee on the House side this upcoming Joint Rule 10 day next week. Right. That's and, a good thing uh, to preview. It's what, next Wednesday? It's yeah. next Wednesday. And more to the point, what gets extension orders? A lot of times those are the ones that end up in a redraft. I have a um, sneaking suspicion that we're going to be here uh, that first week of August talking about whatever climate bill got passed late at night on Friday, July 31st, as the session wraps up this year. Or the conference talks that were going on late on July 31st. Oh, Sam. Oh, I was... It gets to midnight, and then it gets to 12.05, We've seen and you it just happen. can't hold the minute hand back any mm-hmm. longer on the chamber clock. We've seen it happen we've, before. We've seen it happen. Um, Still plenty of time left before we get there to is that, half full half empty kind of take there from <laughs> is that <you> too cynical <laughs> um uh just to quickly preview uh for the layman uh joint rule 10 day uh it is a red letter day on our calendar uh, at the statehouse news service and up here on on beacon hill uh it is generally the deadline for committees to recommend or recommend not uh passage of bills uh but uh, you mentioned extension orders and if there's a, a big issue or a, a hot-button topic that uh, they just haven't reached a consensus on or need a little more time to study, then um, they'll set themselves a new deadline for that bill, right? Yeah, or even, if, or even if there's a lot of bills that 
relate to the same subject and they had kind of a late in the game hearing on it. Um, sometimes you'll see it happen there. And of course, this is only for bills that are filed at the beginning of the session. It's a, it's a big day on the legislative calendar, but it's pretty squishy as far as deadlines go. Sure. Does give us a little bit of a clue of what issues they still might be holding hope to sure. work on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hashtag JR10 day. We're going to make it trend this year. We are. We are. Get excited, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in, in wrapping up, uh, here are a couple other things for you to know this week. We had a couple of hearings on Tuesday about uh, the governor's convention center bill seems to perhaps be faltering, but another hearing on his health care bill that seems poised for some serious consideration by the legislature, drawing a lot of praise there from some members of the committee. Uh, in comings and goings in our little personnel file on the takeout here, state controller. Notice I've settled oh, on... Controller. I've, I've settled on controller. Uh, no. Hard disagree. <laughs> I don't think you're getting that job then. <laughs> <laughs> He's leaving after just 350 some odd days in the job after a spat, a high profile spat with the House and Senate this past session over deadlines. And uh, UMass Boston has zeroed in on a new chancellor, a well-regarded dean from out in Los Angeles. Uh, for the latest news, make sure to check out statehousenews.com, our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And check out Masterlist, our morning newsletter, Masterlist with two S's. That's all for us. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for chatting. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.